Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. This week's entire show is framed by what happened Friday night when San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick made the decision that he would not stand for the national anthem, as well as his speech afterwards, the heart of which was, I am not going to stand up and show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. Today we are going to talk athletic descent with gold medal swimmer Anthony Irvin and another athlete who protested the anthem 13 years ago, Tony Smith-Thompson. Just so people can hear him in his own words before we talk to Anthony Irvin or Tony Smith-Thompson, on Sunday, Colin Kaepernick addressed the media and said this. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. You know, I have great respect for men and women that have fought for this country. I have family, I have friends that have gone and fought for this country. And they fight for freedom. They fight for the people, they fight for liberty and justice for everyone. And that's not happening. I mean, people are dying in vain because this country isn't holding their end of the bargain up as far as giving freedom and justice and liberty to everybody. It's something that's not happening. This stand wasn't for me. This stand wasn't because I feel like I'm being put down. This is because I'm seeing things happen to people that don't have a voice. People that don't have a platform to talk and have their voices heard and affect change. So I'm in a position where I can do that and I'm gonna do that for people that can't. Our first guest won the gold medal in the 50-meter swimming event at the 2016 Rio Games. He also won gold at the 2000 Olympics. That would be a 16-year gap, and that is unreal. He also wrote a book that I helped edit called Chasing Water. He's a person of uncommon thoughtfulness on the sports landscape. His name is Anthony Irvin. The crime which you discover slowly you are guilty is not so much that you are aware, which is bad enough, but that other people see that you are and cannot bear to watch it because it testifies to the fact that they are not. You are bearing witness helplessly to something which everybody knows and nobody wants to face. So, Anthony, you have some roots in the Bay Area, uh, Berkeley in particular. You're, you know, an Olympic gold medalist as well. So what are your thoughts about this Bay Area quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, and his refusal to stand for the anthem and his statements against racism in the United States? To start with uh, the location, as far as the history of the Bay Area and its role in both civil rights and just uh, the liberal outlook, uh, he couldn't have picked a better place to take that stand a place where the people are more likely to be open to listening to the message, uh, maybe despite the method that he's using to get it out there. As far as the method itself of not standing for the national anthem, uh, I mean, I personally wouldn't make that move. I believe the flag and the anthem, uh, it's not supposed to represent uh, the oppression of people of color. Uh, it's supposed to be liberating. So I think that's something that's needs to be found uh, rather than be, you shouldn't indict the anthem for that. And then um, athletes certainly have a platform and the ability to say something. And if you have the choice of to say something or not to say something, um, if it's something you believe in, then you, you really should do it. I don't believe in this. There are people out there that think 
the athlete should just keep his mouth shut and, you know, play the game that he's being paid to play. As a democracy, uh, the athlete uh, has more responsibility than that. That doesn't necessarily mean, like, he has to take that responsibility, uh, but he, he can respond more so than to just uh, throw the ball or, um, you know, jump in the pool. Yeah, there's a particular ugly response to him, and I was curious. Mm. Some people are saying that, like, who is he to say anything because he's made so much money playing football, therefore he's somehow inauthentic or has renounced his right to say something because of his bank account. What do you, what do you think about that? People actually said that? Oh, my God. That, that is one of the big social media hammers being used against him. And I'll tell you the other one in a second, which is going to blow your mind. But let's start with this one here. They said he's earned too much money to speak out. <laughs> I think that's absolutely ridiculous to presume that to have some amount of success prevents you from being able to see the world a certain way or to stand up for those that you think are being oppressed. That's absolutely ridiculous. We need, we need more of that. We need more of people who have power or money trying to take a stand for positive change in our country. Yeah, I, I know. It's a bizarre logic if you think about it. Like, like here's somebody who's taking a step out for police brutality and, you know, risking endorsements, reputation, spot on a team because he feels so strongly that there's no justice on this issue. And because he has money, somehow that invalidates what he's saying. That's one of the arguments. The other one, if that one bothered you, Anthony, I don't even know what this one's going to do. But the one I'm about to say, it's not coming from internet trolls. Like this is stuff that's on like Fox Sports Network and whatnot, is people arguing that because Colin Kaepernick was raised by white parents, who is he to talk about racism? That he grew up in the <laughs> suburb. He grew up in the suburbs, uh, raised by white parents, and therefore he has experienced white privilege and has no right to speak out against racism. I mean, again, wrong. I mean, this is a, it's a it's a misinformed opinion. It's reactionary from somebody who who just doesn't know. I mean, I kind of want to quote Baldwin um, to address the first issue, which is the, uh, the ability to speak out. Um, is that all right with you? Please, I'm a James Baldwin freak. Are you kidding? Yeah, I got a um, copy of Another Country on my on my nightstand. So please go ahead. <laughs> so. Uh, the crime which you discover slowly you are guilty is not so much that you are aware, which is bad enough, but that other people see that you are and cannot bear to watch it because it testifies to the fact that they are not. You are bearing witness helplessly to something which everybody knows and nobody wants to face, end quote. And that's what I imagine what was going through Kaepernick's head as he's making the decision to try to take a stand for the improvement of black people or the people of color in this country, but it's actually for everybody in this country. Damn, Anthony Irvin just quoted James Baldwin. What would your reaction be if you had a teammate on the swim team who said to you, and I'm saying this because you were a co-captain of the team, so someone would conceivably go to you and say this and just say something like, I'm upset about police brutality. I'm not standing for the anthem. I know you might not agree with me, but I need to know if the team would support me. How would you respond to that kind of situation? I would tell him that he needs to do what he believes in. And I would put out the fires that he started by doing that with the team as soon as I could. The right ones, you know, I know that there's, there's going to be certain like, collateral damage to that for people who, who don't know, who don't understand 
who don't quite get it and uh, to try to, you know, maybe pick up some of the slack to help them understand because um, that's their darkness if they don't get it. So I would, I would try to help enlighten where I can in the team just to make it smoother so it would be maybe a little bit more unified as um, my young swimmer activist uh, tries to bring some light to the world. We're talking about the platform, right? Yeah. I mean, you can use the platform to do good, to try to make positive change, or you, or you cannot. <laughs> it's, it's un, you know, it's unfortunate that Kaepernick, you know, that there, there are people that were probably were uh, there on the fence. Or their, their clarity on police brutality was opaque. Maybe they weren't sure what to think, but, you know, when he decided to not stand for the anthem, they can't get past it. And now yeah. they're going to swing the other way on it. You know, whereas the people who... Um, know about police brutality, you know, like they already knew it was something they already believed in. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see the way it pans out. And the tough thing I think about being an athlete activist is that you have to be adversarial uh, to accomplish it. Cause that's the role that people that are going to be paying attention to you expect of you. Um, I think the educational component is probably of, of enlightening the people is probably best done uh, through the artist, you know, uh, and, and, you know, James Baldwin has wrote and written about that extensively. I think that the athlete can bring attention to it, but I don't think he can necessarily complete it in, in the, as the activist. I think it takes the artist. This is the Edge of Sports podcast. We're here talking with gold medal swimmer Anthony Irvin, author of the book Chasing Water. I've wanted to ask you this uh, since Rio. All right, so you won the gold. How has your life changed? Uh, the mantle of responsibility got a lot heavier. I feel I, I am a representative of something more than myself, and I want to do good by that. I want to do right by that for everybody I know, but then you know, for everybody that may be following in my wake and whatever, however that may come. I, mean, I got to say, it, it's almost an absurdist story, like this idea of you winning a gold in 2000 as a teenager, tying for the gold, and then taking mm-hmm. so many years off and then winning again in 2016. It, pr- probably not the most recommended path for somebody who wants to win an Olympic gold in their 30s, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. I wonder if you're going to be a role model in that regard as well, like people who stopped in their late 20s and said, you know what? This guy did it in his mid-30s. Who's to say I can't? That's true. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> certainly uh, a, a long strain of, of self-knowledge or, or lack thereof that led to stopping and then also led to getting back into it. And, and you know, the, the idea of the role model, that was something that I don't think I knew it consciously at the time, but I wasn't ready to be a role model. I couldn't be what I imagined uh, would be a good leader for people that I didn't know, but that would look up to me anyways. So I just started that Laurel when I was younger, you know, in my hope that this time around uh, I can carry it, that I can be that for others. Mm-hmm. And what w- a role model for what exactly though? Like who, who are you projecting that role model? I mean, are you talking about kids? Are you talking about people who want to get involved with swimming? Are you talking about, you know, having a sense of principle as you go about your athletics? Like, who, who's the community you're trying to speak to at this point? Could be any, could be all. I am, I am the intersection of many, many different <laughs> forms of identity that may possibly be able to relate to an aspect of my story. I wouldn't want to neglect 
all of them um, or any one. And I, I would try to be as inclusive as I can or when I'm speaking on subject matter, you know, allow that to dictate which, which strand of identity is being put on the line. And that question of identity, I mean, it's so central to chasing water. And for folks who don't know, and this is what I was referencing with the Kaepernick discussion a little bit, it's that it, as a teenage gold medalist, uh, you were projected and put forward in 2000 as the first swimmer of African descent, the first African-American swimmer to win gold. And for people who don't know you, it's like you can pass as white. How did that play with your sense of identity? How did that, you know, how are you able to function with that being foisted upon you at such a young age? And how are you dealing with it now, I guess, is is also the follow-up to that. Well, when I was younger, it was massively confusing to, to try to operate in a representative role when I felt like I was trying to convince people one way or another. Be like, no, 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 you know, I, I am, I am black. Mm-hmm. Or and the other way, I'd be like, uh, no, I'm, I'm not actually white, so don't call me that either. So I didn't like having to convince others of what I am. I wanted to just be, and I found that uh, just passing for whatever that would mean. You know, there, there are definitely people out there that can spot me as I'm not Caucasian. I'm not right. you know, a wasp. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's totally out there, too, and I, I'm not about to push back against whatever people want to assume I am until it becomes relevant. Um, Once it becomes relevant, you know, then we can have the discussion to bring it to where I am now. I guess, I guess that is where I am now. You know, it's, it really depends on who's making the approach and for what purpose and, you know, whether it's relevant to begin talking about it or if, you know, if I'm just cruising down the street, I can just keep walking because it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, and I think one of the interesting things about you talk about in chasing water is, like just the way you now look back and understand what U.S. U.S. swimming was trying to do in terms of putting you forward with this identity. And I guess one question I have is how much free will did you have in 2000 when they attempted to project you as the first black swimmer to win gold um, in, in the choice that they made in, in foisting that? And how do you look back on it now, 16 years later? Well, I was 19 had just begun to break free of the controls that uh, I was most familiar with, the ones I'd grown up against. Uh, so I was still very much in a wanting more freedom mode, always more, always more. And I don't think I had a terrible amount of free will, but I was also bound to my own momentum of trying to break free of all things. That's the SoCal in you talking. <laughs> I don't know. Trying to break but free, be- man. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. A lot of people don't even know that there's a constraint that they need to break free from. It took a while for me to understand it. It was, certainly was not like conscious at the time I was going through it. Now, swimming and race was a, a huge story in 2016 at the Rio Games because of the emergence of, of Simone Manuel. Uh, were you able to speak with her at all about this? Were you guys able to have any kinds of interactions to talk about some of what she could expect, uh, blessings and burdens of having to be a first? I did. I, it, it just so happened. I was, I was walking by uh, a few weeks ago as Simone and you know her teammate Leah, Leah Neal, who's, mm-hmm. who's also African-American, but she, she's half Asian-American as well. So for her, uh, the, the identity politics are a little bit more thorough than with, with Simone because she has two competing identities within her that wants to be able to get out. 
And they're talking to our, our PR and communications director about like, hey, you know, like this is going to come up. Um, you know, like how do you want to, to deal with it? Have you, have you thought about it? And, you know, as those two girls and they're close friends and they, they see the differences in each other and celebrate those. And that's kind of where they were coming from. I think it was a bit harder at the moment for them to determine what representing African-Americans or all African-Americans is that kind of implies when you're up there being asked to address those questions. And, you know, I just, I walked up kind of thinking I'm the man and I told them like, Hey, don't worry about it. Just respond like Muhammad Ali, whatever they want, whatever they want to say on you, just say, I am free to be who I want to be, not to who you want me to be. So whatever those reporters, whatever those cameras are, don't give them the power. The power should be yours. Freedom is made of your own accord not by anybody else's. Damn, you just uncorked that. <laughs> I, I did, and then I, then I dropped the mic and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and their response was, whoa. <laughs> I, I, didn't even, I didn't even give them space for a response. I just walked away. <laughs> now, 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 whether that set in and actually meant anything to how things played out with Simone, I have no idea. I would not put money on it having any effect, or even if they remember. I mean, how are things different now in 2016 than 2000? Am I correct in thinking that U.S. swimming and just the entire PR apparatus is just less clumsy in terms of how it deals with race and sports? Mm, I couldn't only give a very ignorant opinion for back in 2000. Go for it. Um, You know, but back then, I was was the blackest thing that had come around on the Olympic team. Mm -hmm. And I believe that they really desperately wanted it to change. Like if it had happened sooner, if it had happened yesterday, that would, that would have been better for them. Uh, I think it was, it was a source of shame, you know, when, when even in golf, you know, Tiger broke the color barrier in a sport that should have been even, even wider, even more exclusionary, but in swimming, it just hadn't happened yet. There have been a few people and I, and I know them that have gotten close to making the Olympic team, but it just hadn't quite happened yet. You know, but fast forward 16 years later and We've had a handful of black Americans who have made the swim team and won medals with distinction. So there's always going to be a first of something every time it happens. You know, for Simone, she won an individual gold. But, you know, like she, she shared that individual gold because she tied somebody. So, you know, is it, are they going to make another big deal when another African-American swimmer uh, is atop the podium alone? Mm. You know, so it's just... That's the way these kind of things work. There's always a first of something that you can build up to. There's always a, a new peak being built. Well, obviously people like yourself now have this platform to maybe bring swimming into competitive swimming, into communities where it did not before exist. Are there, are there plans by U.S. swimming? Because I'm sure you probably saw this, but in the wake of Simone Manuel's victory, there were a lot of articles about like the history of swimming, Jim Crow, how people are breaking mm-hmm. through that. And some of it was, was really brilliant scholarship produced for a popular audience uh, that was re- really, really eye-opening in terms of like where, where are the pools? How did private pools even begin? Who had access mm-hmm. to being able to swim? The drowning rate in communities of color because of it. I mean, it's, it's heavy stuff. How do we start to turn that around? And what, what role do, do you see you're you, you playing a role in that going forward? Well, I've, I've certainly worked in 
vulnerable communities or communities of color or, or whatever, just trying to get in there and trying to, to bring swimming. And it is tough. Um, at least from, from my standpoint, it's, um, it's more, it is a generational thing, which makes it a, a unique barrier. And I think having a Simone there to inspire in a way that uh, a parent can't, but also that a parent can't get in the way of, because um, at least as far as what I've seen from my experience, it's the parent that doesn't know how to swim, mm-hmm. it can become the greatest barrier to the child learning how to swim, even though you know, accidental drowning is one of the leading causes of death of young people in this country. The parent is afraid of that, so they, they mm-hmm. keep the kid away from the water of all types, even afraid to get them to, to learn how to swim because they don't know how to do it themselves. So, you know, they're in fear if they're at the pool trying to see the swim lesson. It's a very unique problem, but I think that, you know, having Simone there, the more she lifts the mantle she has and more she uses that platform, she can make a generational difference. So what's next for you, Anthony? I mean, 35 years old, two gold medals, 16 years apart. You're also doing the best swimming of your life right now. So, I mean, where from here for you? What's the next plan? What's the next step? We talk in Tokyo. (laughs) Well, I'll definitely be in Tokyo. I am a, as much as we can push back against what the Olympics is and the harms that it does, I still believe in the good it can do as well. So I look forward to being part of the, the Tokyo 2020 Games, you know, whether that's as an athlete or if I'm there in some other capacity. That is the goal. I mean, but that's four years distant. There's a lot for me to do between yeah. now and then. What was the experience like to be in Rio, like this incredibly vibrant, teeming city with all sorts of incredible culture, but also inequalities, injustices, uh, but also sights and sounds and see it through the eyes of, of, of being an Olympian and being in the village. I mean, I'm going to be frank. Being in Rio for the Olympics was, it was actually my third trip to Rio de Janeiro. And during the Olympics, it's, you don't really get to see that. You don't see too much of the culture. You don't get to see too many of the people. Not when, like when I was there on my own for, for much smaller enterprises, because you know, the, the Olympics is like a, a spaceship that lands on a city. And so my experiences at Rio, being in the village and being in the Olympic Park and competing, is, um, is much more similar to just being in London during the Games or being in Sydney during the Games. Mm. Not a lot of the character of the city and the people get into that spaceship. The volunteers were, of course, very, very nice, and all the people I did encounter that were working or volunteering but I don't think it's the same. It's not the same when I, you know, just would cru- be cruising up and down the avenue uh, or along the beaches when I was there a year ago or the year before. And I got to ask you, like Chasing Water, I've obviously read it several times. And I kept wondering when you got that goal in you know, one one hundredth of a damn second. And now I'm thinking about like months of work on this book, really years of work talking about you and your co-author, Constantine Marquitas. And I kept wondering about, um, other than the book's ending being different, is there anything you would change about it? I mean, it's a brutally honest book. It's one of the things that's great about it. And now you're a gold medalist, which, as you said earlier on, carries a different kind of weight, different kind of responsibility. Is there anything you'd change about the book if you had to go back? Uh, that's, that's kind of antithetical to my philosophies, you know. Don't look back uh, with regret. Can't change the past. I mean, the book is released. 
uh, I hope I don't encounter something that I really want to go and try to edit out, you know, the way, uh, I don't know, like George Lucas changes so that uh, <laughs> Han Solo shoots second, you know, like, <laughs> but even that, like, I understood why, why George wanted to go in for that, because uh, it, it clarifies things. It makes things a little bit simpler for those who don't have the capacity to understand. But I suppose that's what I'd be afraid of, is um, those who don't want to do the work to understand just turn instead to condemnation. Those are the people that I'm kind of afraid of in this world in general. Anthony, thank you so much for the time, man. I know you're busy. I really do appreciate it. No, no worries, man. I look forward to this. That was Anthony Irvin, gold medal swimmer and the author of the book Chasing Water. To learn more about Anthony, first of all, you should read Chasing Water because it's amazing. But second of all, you can always follow him on Twitter at Anthony Irvin. And now it's time for some choice words, which are going to lead into our interview with Tony Smith-Thompson. So both Colin Kaepernick's words and deeds had a very familiar ring for me because they were called another moment of athlete activism and the national anthem. But it didn't happen in the NFL, and it wasn't an action of someone possessing wealth or fame. It was an unlikely protest at a moment when the hard work of political dissent was unheard of on the field of play. The year was 2003. It was the start of the Iraq War. The scene was a small Division III school called Manhattanville in Purchase, New York. And the political actor was a senior forward on the women's basketball team named Tony Smith. In this atmosphere thick with jingoistic fervor, Smith made the decision to turn her back on the flag during the national anthem. Now, in those relatively primitive internet days, the story still managed to go viral. And the outrage directed at Tony Smith was volcanic. The webpage of this small liberal arts college had over two million hits. Threats of violence were sent to the school and were palpable in the stands. And even though this was all before social media, which has amplified every threat and created a virtual white hood for the 21st century bigot, there was an effort to bury Tony Smith for the crime of practicing dissent. Yet still she stood strong, explaining her actions by saying, a lot of people blindly stand up and salute the flag, but I feel that blindly facing the flag hurts more people. There are a lot of inequities in this country, and these are issues that needed to be acknowledged. The rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer, and our priorities are elsewhere, end quote. Today, her name is Tony Smith-Thompson. She lives in New York City and works for the New York American Civil Liberties Union, and we have her right now on the line. Tony, I mean, what was your reaction when you heard that there was this NFL player who was doing a protest during the anthem? I can't imagine what that conjured for you, but I'd love your thoughts. It took me immediately back to college, to be honest. I simultaneously thought, wow, it took this long for this to happen again. And also, I never expected it to happen again. But I just started reading as much as I could. I was watching the responses. I went onto social media. I went onto the articles. And the responses are so eerily similar to what I experienced. And it, it has been wild to watch it unfold on another person. Mm. What's your reaction to the reaction to Colin Kaepernick? And how do you compare and contrast it with what you faced back in 2003? I mean, the responses are the same. Yeah, I found that too, that like the similarity of the responses yeah. is really striking. 
you know, there are some differences in his position and my position. So there was a list of excuses that I saw repeated about why my protest was not valid. Um, some of them are different from him. For him, you know, I was not important enough for many people mm-hmm. to make this stance because I was only a Division three basketball player or my skin was not brown enough or, you know, there was like the oppression Olympics. Have you suffered enough to be able to speak, which actually Kaepernick has been getting a lot of that. And in addition, he's also been getting that, well, you're too wealthy. America has been kind to you. You don't have the proper credentials to speak out on oppression. Well, who, who is this small subset of people who has the right to speak out on oppression? It's not me. It's not Kaepernick. We say we want athletes to speak out, or maybe some of these people do not actually, but, but then when they use their platform, then they're also criticized for not being the perfect messenger. Well, no, you're absolutely right about that last part. Like, I feel like a lot of the same, at least sports media people, who say, gee, why aren't athletes better role models when somebody actually tries to role model caring about the world and saying something, they're absolutely crushed for it. Yeah, and it's likely that our definition of a role model is very narrow. You know, it's charitable work. It's where do you give your money. It's kind of make the world, make the country better, mm-hmm. but through very small incremental change that doesn't cause discomfort. Um, and he's just blown that out of the, out of the water and taken it like leaps and bounds further. You know, one of the interesting compares and contrasts between the two of you, and you just touched on it, but I want to talk about this again. Um, you, you're of a mixed background, and you talked about, like, the oppression Olympics and people saying, well, you're not dark enough or whatever to be able to say anything about racism. And with Colin Kaepernick, it's that, oh, he's w- raised by white parents, and you probably saw that. Yeah. And therefore, yeah. he doesn't ha- – who is he to speak about this? One Fox News guy even said that he experienced white privilege and therefore had no right to speak about racism. How do you respond to that other than like feeling your own head explode? Like what yeah. like what do you say to people who obviously aren't trying to make an argument but are only trying to actually use something as personal as your identity to invalidate the substance of what you're trying to say? Well, you know, one very obvious argument against that is that if you look at his Twitter feed and all over, you'll see tons of racial epithets being hurled at him right now, which so clearly you're saying he has been sheltered because he's raised by white parents. And then you get to see that actually that white privilege does not extend to brown skin, no matter who you were raised by. And secondly, is that what we want in this country for people only to have experienced a certain level of oppression to speak out against it? That's actually what we are working to do to get people who have not experienced injustice in ways that other people have to transcend their own personal experiences to fight for equity across the board, no matter what that looks like. Exactly. Like how amazing would it be if Aaron Rodgers spoke out against police brutality, like what that would do for the movement to have prominent white athletes to say, I have black teammates. I don't like the fact that they're scared for themselves or their kids. This needs to change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that was amazing about the WNBA protest this year. Mm -hmm. There was a real unified uh, message there. Yeah. And men's sports, again, uh, needs to take a lesson. Um, I've been trying to like really think about some more compare and contrast with, with what you went through and what cabinet went through. And it's so interesting because you didn't have to deal with the torrent of social media abuse. And yeah. I can't imagine what that would have been like in, two, in 2003. It would have been unrelenting. I mean, two million hits for your college website. Those were all people I doubt who would have been necessarily kind. But on the other side of it, you were also standing very alone at that moment in 2003. 
because that was like full scale. We love the war in Iraq. George W. Bush is amazing, bipartisan, Democrat, Republican. And you're standing against that. And yet Colin Kaepernick at least has the context of a movement, not to mention other athletes with which he's stepping out of. For years, I've wondered what it would have been like for my protest during the age of um, social media and have thought that, well, wow, that would have been really frightening. And now I'm watching it unfold. And so you're right. There was um, I've been thinking a lot about the level of loneliness that I experienced then, that even though there was tons of public support, which mostly came in the form of letters and online articles, you know, the information and the support trickled out slowly to the public because we didn't have social media. But amidst all of the firestorm inside was this very small, lonely nucleus where it was me and my family. My circle of friends got very, very small. Most of my friends didn't know how to support me. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about what Colin will likely need as he works through this. And, you know, it's true that he does have some more athletes who've helped to pave his path up till this point. But I will say that the fact that he is a prominent NFL player, there are fans invested in him in ways that were not invested in me. And so he does have much more at stake. He's much more visible. And at the very least, he has athletes that have helped pave the way for him. But I don't think that that minimizes the blowback. And I think it it will be equally as detrimental for him emotionally as it was for me. Mm. And and that that's an interesting thing too, because one other difference is you know you were a senior basketball player at the time. Yeah, there was so an this end was in like, sight. Yeah, exactly. Last <laughs> hurrah! I'm going out with a bang, you know. And he's like in what should be at least uh, from a temporal perspective the prime of yeah. his career, and I I think that plays into it in a very interesting way because the NFL is going to have to decide whether. Winning matters more than the right wing politics of their owners, because if he yeah. gets cut and can't find a job in the league where winning is supposed to be everything, that'll be a statement unto itself. So it's almost like he's daring the league. Yeah, and I've seen some comments that say he's only sitting. This is not a real stand. If he wanted to have a real impact, he should follow LeBron. He should follow these other athletes who've done X, Y, and Z protest, as though to compare the two. Uh, but he's putting a lot on the line, and it's yeah. true. And yes, there was an end in sight for me. I knew that the public scrutiny would end at some point. And you know, hopefully, Colin can continue his NFL career beyond this season. I didn't have that concern. And so the first time that I protested, I was nervous. I didn't know it was going to become so public, but I knew it was a big deal. And from then on, each protest was only weightier than the last because I knew there were more and more eyes on me. And it's likely that the same will be true for him. You know, the first protest this weekend may have felt very big for him. And the ones to come will likely only feel bigger, more weightier, more dangerous. And without an end in sight... I can't even imagine the muster that it will continue to take for him to continue to go out and do this day in and day out. Would you meet with Colin Kaepernick if he wanted to get together with someone who's been through this experience? Absolutely. I would. um, Absolutely. What do you think you would say when you met with him? Would it it be more just like, okay, this guy wanted to meet with me. Let's hear what he has to say. Or do you think you would have some like very specific advice for him going forward? Because I think, frankly, to be honest, Tony, before you answer, like, I think you've earned the right to give that advice. Like, I don't say that lightly. Right. Well, well, thank you for saying that, because I'm thinking, I don't actually know. Obviously, there's 
stuff I could offer in terms of my experience, but it's kind of funny to be asking me to kind of give advice to a professional NFL player. But um, <laughs> like I said, I think it's like you're one of very small handful of people I think's earned the right to say, okay, how do you deal with a team concept? How do you deal with, 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 with media? How do you deal with life as an athlete when you take that stand against that anthem? I don't know what's been happening behind the scenes, but it, it seems like there has been some conversation from what I've read so far between him and his teammates. And I saw a couple of teammates said that they actually asked him. And once they talked to him, they felt a little bit differently. And so I think that's a step in the right direction for him. I think that's only going to be good for his emotional health. I I did not have that conversation with my teammates. No one mm. asked me. And I didn't feel like volunteering the information once the atmosphere got so volatile. And it stayed that way for the entire season. I mean, as you remember, and it was Mm -hmm. documented, there were really only two teammates who I spoke to for the rest of that season. And it did get very, very lonely. And I've thought a lot about what it would have taken for me to really feel supported during that time. And as I think on that, that's something that I probably would love to offer for him. And offer to his inner circle. Here's what it means to really support him at this time. It's not just the speaking out publicly in support of his right to do it, but it's really speaking in support of him. It's affirming the message that he's conveying. It's his day-to-day activities will likely have to change. And the people in his inner circle should be willing to change their day-to-day comings and goings as well to really support him. I really struggled with college life during that time because my friends were going to bars and having fun and they wanted to continue their normal college experience. And the only way they knew how to support me was to encourage me to continue that life with them. And it was hard for me to really convey to them and really get them to understand that being in a bar where ESPN was on and my picture was being Mm -hmm. shown did not feel like a safe space for me. And all I could do was retreat. Mm. You know, I think that's something that I'm taking this moment maybe to speak to some of the younger listeners out here, like say people who are like in their early 20s. Like I don't think people really understand like how thick the atmosphere was in 2003 and how suffocating it felt to stand up against the war. At the time, I had an anti-war bumper sticker and someone put a big cement block through the back of my car. You know, when it was parked somewhere, um, you know, it was like if Fox News was on 24-7 where I was working with, you know, the drumbeat to war in Iraq. I mean, it was it was very intense. And so I, I, to me, it makes sense that today, you know, in this atmosphere of Black Lives yeah. Matter and politicized black athletes, it's like, of course, it makes sense that the team would have a meeting to talk about what Colin Kaepernick did to be able to clear the air and get a sense of peace and and so they could go about what they're doing. And yet I can also really imagine in 2003 it being the sort of thing that is not talked about because no one wants to have that discussion. I mean, that's to me about the power of movements and the sense at least of some progress that's been made over the last 13 years. I hope so. You think I'm Maybe. a little, little too, little too hopeful on that? that. <laughs> is very hopeful for you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, one thing I thought about in regards to having these conversations is one benefit that Colin may have is that his teammates are adults, uh, like, you know, fully independent Mm -hmm. adults. And um, my teammates were not yet, you know, they still heavily relied on their parents' opinions and support. And so I wasn't just battling my teammates, I was battling their parents as well. And that made it really hard to break through both levels of that conversation to really get my teammates support. I had to get their parents support as well. And I was not capable of doing that. I didn't know how to do that. Oh, that sounds so awful. 
Can I just say <laughs> to have I to mean, leave? these are these were parents that had become we you know we'd become a family. I had been to their house for dinner. We right. had, you know they were openly always supporting us, and then suddenly they were waving flags in the stands, and their my teammates were wearing you know red, white, and blue headbands. Um, so it was just hard to cut through that. And at at some point, I I didn't try. I guess the big question: any regrets for taking the stand that you did at the time? And is Not there at any, all. And is there anything you wish you'd done differently? No regrets about my protest at all. And actually looking back, I've been reviewing a lot in, over the last two days. And um, some of the pictures I look at, oh, God, did I do that? I really did that. That was nuts. And I realized that it did take a lot to do what I did. And I don't know that I've given myself credit for that enough. One thing that I think I should have done differently was at the time, there were many offers for me to participate in movements and um, do interviews and do like the whole media circuit. And I'm not big on the whole media circuit. And I don't think I would do that differently. But I really felt like I hadn't earned the right. I hadn't paid my dues to lead movements, to lend my voice, to kind of be the voice for movements um, in front of people who had actually been doing the work for years and decades. And I did shy away from a lot of that because I felt like I, I haven't earned this. You know, I made a, I took a stand. I'm glad that it's having an impact in this moment, but I don't feel like that has lent itself to giving me this position front and center of these movements that I haven't been working on for years. You know, and 13 years later, I've been working, I've been actively involved in activism, and I I feel differently. I feel like, yeah, I've earned the right to speak on these issues and to lend my voice because ultimately it's not about me. It's the message and it's the mission, right? The goal of equity um, and whatever gets us there will get us there. Tony Smith-Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, the Just Stand Up Award this week, believe it or not, does not go to Colin Kaepernick, who certainly did stand up by sitting down. But I'm giving it to Khalid Bedyun, who is an author, an academic, who wrote something about sports radio and coverage of Colin Kaepernick that I want to share. This is what he said. He was listening to a lot of sports radio. And as he put it, he observed, quote, four overarching themes. And these are the four. One, two, three, four, 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 four. One, white men telling a black man how to go about protesting the mistreatment of black people. Two, millionaire athletes should keep politics out of sports, otherwise known as remaining docile, dumb, and shut up and play. Three, playing a professional sport is a privilege made possible by our wars abroad, not a job earned through exceptional talent, hard work, and sacrifice. And four, that black lives mostly matter when entertaining fans through sport, never critical politics. And then Khalid wrote, instead of assessing the merits of his free speech rights, these sports experts infuse their own political worldview to condemn Kaepernick. In short, they freely exercise the very right they unwaveringly denied him. Now, why am I pointing this out? Because I think we should all be listening to sports radio this week. Seriously, normally I wouldn't say that, but we should all be listening to it and thinking about whether or not these are the four points that your local sports radio person, or most likely dude, is making. And if they're making those four points, then I think you got to say something. 
Say something against this being the dominant media tide against Colin Kaepernick. And if you happen to have a sports radio host who's actually thinking critically about what Colin Kaepernick is doing and actually engaging in what he's trying to say and also actually trying to understand why so many NFL players are supporting Colin Kaepernick right now, then give them some love. Tell them that they're doing it right. Because we actually need to build media that's listening to what athletes are saying and not just criticizing them with the same tired, knee-jerk arguments that were made against Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Billie Jean King. It's unbelievable. There's been so much progress in so many respects over the last 50, 60 years. But when it comes to sports journalism and political athletes, we are still overwhelmingly mired in the past. The only difference is today's sports journalists will praise the past people like Muhammad Ali, while criticizing athletes who try to actually apply those politics in the present. So if your local sports radio host is actually saying something compelling about what Colin Kaepernick is doing, if it seems like they're listening more than they're talking at him, then please call us and let us know so we can create some love and support and solidarity for people who are doing sports radio right. It might be a short list, but if we want it to be a longer list, we got to support the people who aren't just being right-wing radio with some sports thrown in. So give us a call, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. That's the Edge of Sports hotline. Call that line and let us know who's doing it proper. And speaking of that, we have a call that came in on the hotline this week. I haven't heard it. I know it's by someone named Ronnie, and I know that my producer, Dan, wants me to respond to it. This is the first time I'm hearing it. Let's hear it, Dan. I'll give you my response off the top of the dome. Hi, my name is Ronnie. So what made you decide to speak out on issues that affect marginalized people in the world of sports with regards to them being black or First Nations or any type of injustice? Why did you decide not to set out, so to speak? Hopefully I hear back from you. Uh, thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for the call, Ronnie. I mean, honest and true, uh, I think that sports is an incredible lens to have discussions that otherwise people are not going to have. Uh, whether those discussions are about race, whether those discussions are about gender, whether those discussions are about sexuality, whether those discussions are about union rights. Uh, it's just been my experience that sports allows us to actually speak about these things in a way that far too often uh, we're not able to do so. It's an avenue for communication, and it's really important. Now, why am I involved in this? Why do I think it's so important? Well, first of all, because I love sports, but a huge part of me hates what sports has become. Um, I hate the fact that it's over-commodified. I hate the fact that it's over-commercialized. And I hate all the racism, sexism, and homophobia that exists in sports. So what we're trying to do with this show is fight for sports to be better, to fight for sports to change, to not reject sports, but to reclaim it. And part of reclaiming it means an entire history that's worth reclaiming. It's not just the present tense, that moment of LeBron James dunking a basketball that we're trying to reclaim. It's an entire history of athlete activists, of people like Jackie, Muhammad, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova. And it's also about the moments throughout history that have actually acted as a form of social cohesion and not social separation. The fact of the matter is this. Sports right now are being ruthlessly exploited by people who want to divide us. 
whether it's being used for the public funding of stadiums and actually dividing entire cities, or whether it's being used as a way to promote racist names like the Washington football team. Sports is used way too often to divide. Uh, What we want to do is actually use sports to unite and unite people against some of the interests that we see trickling down from the owner's box. That's what Edge of Sports is all about. I appreciate that you're listening. And you know what? If you like the show, tell a friend. Because the more people who listen to the show, the more chance we have of actually storming the gates, storming the owner's box, and making sports truly for the people. If you want to get involved in this conversation, tweet us at Edge of Sports, follow us on Facebook, call us at 401-426-EDGE, that's the Edge of Sports hotline, get involved uh, with the show, please. And one thing you can do, definitely, go to edgesportspodcast.com, subscribe to the show at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Spread the word, Edge of Sports. For my producer, Dan Bloom. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.